0: Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, resilience in your workforce gets a couple of shots in the arm. The first 20 years of the EGov Act set the stage for the next 20 years, and the government's revenue leaders get a thumbs up on financial management. It's Wednesday, November 30th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Salesforce is the connected platform that powers government health services. Salesforce helps public entities engage with their health constituents on a single intelligent platform to improve care outcomes from anywhere. You learn more at sfdc.co/psh. A new framework for mental health resilience is out from the Office of the Surgeon General. It matches with a number of initiatives individual federal agencies are taking for their workforces. Mika Cross is a federal workplace expert. Mika, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. And thank you for flagging this for me. What in this five essentials for workplace mental health and well-being struck you as important for people in human capital offices across government? Welcome.
1: Thanks so much, Francis, And I'm so excited to talk about this framework and also some other tools that have just recently hot off the press has been published and specifically for government leaders, too. But this framework that the U.S. Surgeon General has published, it is the first of its kind and it's really a roadmap with clear and actionable steps that any employer across any industry across any organization in any role can follow and it really centers around these two human needs which is you know safety and security but the framework has five specific essentials and really the linkage that stands out for me is that work affects well-being in our lives And it's very clear in each of the essentials and the fundamental pieces of the framework, both for leaders and organizations, that we really need to be transitioning the narrative around workplace well-being and mental health from a me issue to a we issue. So I'm very excited, and, and, and I think, you know, when agencies start embracing some of the pieces and components of this framework, it's really going to lead into some of the goals and objectives that they're seeing on the president's management agenda, learning agenda, in fact, around well-being that aren't well yet framed and formulated yet. It will help assist in some of their equity and strategic plans on DEIA even, and of course, lead to significant implications on employee engagement and workforce experience
0: to your point about work affecting well-being mika where are agencies going wrong now in that area the most do you think
1: well to be honest francis it's some of the long-term systemic challenges that we've been talking about which is like place-based approaches place-based mindsets and place-based policy And so if we can get away from that in terms of how do you consider a holistic employee experience from the time you start, you know, recruiting and dangling the carrot to get new and early career talent in the doors, to how we welcome and onboard, to how we build connection and community. Some of these elements are coming straight from that framework, by the way, that we're talking about, you know, protection from harm, work-life harmony. How can we be the most flexible? and design work around well-being that puts trust and autonomy first, but also achieves the mission and accountability.
0: Um, Regarding place-based approaches, mindset, policy. Policy is one thing. Approaches seems to be changing in the right direction, at least from what I'm hearing anecdotally. A a friend of mine told me recently, a contractor uh, went to work at the agency with which they have a contract, and this was before Thanksgiving, so it's like two, three weeks ago, and it was a Tuesday, a day that you would think there'd be people there. And he said, maybe 5% of the building was occupied. And this was in the context of a discussion about what the federal footprint looks like, not well-being, but yeah. people are voting with their feet. And it sounds like at least in some agencies, this agency in particular, managers are letting them vote with their feet.
1: Yeah, well, I think that you're right that there are some agencies who get it mm-hmm. and that there are some agencies who will have to
2: mm-hmm.
1: Um There are some slow rolling organizations where the culture is just fixated still that, you know, innovation, creativity and collaboration and togetherness only happens in a place where we're together physically in close proximity and those organizations that are really focused on cultivating skill and competency at the lowest level of the organization at the middle level manager piece of the organization and then at the executive leadership type with data right we need to be bringing in those data points that really make a difference in terms of how people can make the mission possible um those are the ones that are getting it right but you know there's a lot of pushback there are organizations that have invested millions and millions of dollars on redesigning and reimagining a workspace which is a place-based approach, even before the pandemic. And so pandemic happened and they are really trying to feverishly push as many people back into a physical workspace as they can. Those are the organizations that OPM has been highlighting as sort of, you know, not red flags necessarily, but let's call it a yellow flag where, you know, federal workers are looking to jump ship to go to somewhere else. And if you do take a look at the data in terms of, intent to leave even within the next year on the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, typically that number collectively hovers around 30% or higher government-wide. Now, that does include retirement and leaving for another agency, but could you stand to lose 30% of your team within the next year and continue operating the way you have been? I mean, it's a real significant impact.
0: Yeah, I don't know of any agency that could do that. And I wonder if anybody has or is starting the research, like whether it's in government or an outside government group, to try to correlate that data, to see if there's a way to quantify or score the uh, remote work or telework policy, and then try to correlate it to that number from the FEVs, because it seemed that would be very, very telling if somebody were to put that together.
1: In fact, I just visited the OPM FEVS data reports website earlier today, because I was hoping that there was some more guidance from 2022. The 2021 reports have it broken down by demographics. One of those demographic categories are whether you're headquarters, whether you're in another location, or whether you are a full-time teleworker. The scores are amazing when you look at that. And really it does point to the impact. But that said, you know the majority of federal workers and the majority of the civilian labor force cannot perform their jobs fully remote 100% of the time. So again, getting back to those components And it's specifically the piece around work-life harmony that the Surgeon General says impacts a healthy workplace is extending flexibility at large, whether that's, you know, flexible work schedules, compressed work schedules, part-time, seasonal, intermittent shift work, job sharing, you name it. And those are things the federal government has available that don't cost a dime, but that have historically been underutilized and can, in fact, enhance the workplace experience for those who cannot enjoy a remote or telework kind of schedule
0: Um, all right you teased me at the beginning with some other resources that are just out that people aren't talking about yet uh, that are specifically aimed at federal agencies tell me about those because uh, it strikes me that uh, those probably will address a lot of the issues that you've talked about today
1: I am so excited and you know if you want to add links for your listeners as well I'm happy to share that too so we can add that in the mix but to. you know if you were to visit health.gov and look for the federal plan for equitable long-term recovery and resilience this is a federal plan for government leaders that talks about all the pieces and components of what it takes to build a healthy and resilient workforce and for the long haul they also have components of vital conditions for health and well-being So it's an additional framework, (laughs) not just the one that the Surgeon General, but imagine if we're able to get this into the hands of leaders who are struggling with those pieces of, you know, connection, collaboration, culture, when you're looking at a workforce that, as you just mentioned, might not all be together on a Tuesday afternoon as they used to be in the same place at the same time. Also, this is going to help set government leaders and agencies up for success for the long haul. And it centers around resilience. It centers around a healthy workplace. It centers around how you can build meaningful work, lifelong learning, enhance work-life harmony, connections, community, um, and recognition for a job well done and how how you feel that your work matters and that you have a sense of belonging. So these are really amazing resources that are just hot off the presses and are starting to be incorporated in the Biden administration's framework across um, their cross-agency priority goals, as part of their PMA, and as part of the performance improvement measures.
0: Um, one quick final thought, Mika, you've used the term resilience a couple of times in our conversation. Is there a, common, a commonly accepted definition of resilience either in the federal uh, workforce community or more broadly in the workforce community at large?
1: I think, I mean, it's such a great question. If you were to ask emergency management practitioners, (laughs) they would have one definition that for the books and, you know, from academia and all that they learn and apply. In DOD, it might look different than it does in HUD, than it does in DOL and those sorts of things. But in terms of this framework, it really does weave all those elements together. And guess what? So many of our federal partners, and especially from federal statistical agencies have been contributing to these kinds of documents in order to sort of streamline that framework. And that's what we really need. Again, a whole of government approach, right?
0: Mika Cross, it's great to talk to you as always. Thank you, my friend.
1: Thank you, Princess.
0: You can find links to all those resources Mika mentioned in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of The Daily Scoop podcast. Cyber leaders from DOD, DHS, HHS, and a lot of other agencies will be on hand for the Security Transformation Summit next Thursday at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to read more about the summit and sign up in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Congress is back at work this week for the first time after the midterm elections. Nahal Krishan writes at fedscoop.com that one of the first things the Senate will take on is new legislation about FedRAMP. Karen Evans is partner at KENT Partners. She's former EGOV administrator at the Office of Management and Budget and former chief information officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Karen, I miss terribly seeing you at ELC. I was so excited for you to be up on stage with the other five ladies uh, that we've talked about and talked to. Uh, a number of times in the month or so since that event. Um, but this FedRAMP legislation, some of the other things Congress is considering, are, is coming as we approach the 20th anniversary of the EGOV Act. And that was what you were going to talk about on stage at ELC. What are you thinking about as the 20th anniversary of the EGOV Act approaches in mid December? Welcome, Karen.
3: Well, Thank you so much, Francis. And and I'm sorry I missed everybody too, but I told a few people and maybe it was better that I wasn't there because if I said some things, people might say, Oh, now I know why I'm glad she's not in that job anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, but this month is the 20th anniversary of the EGov Act, of it being signed into law. And uh, when I really look at a lot of these things, it's kind of like what's old is new. And, um, and it's, you know, as the technology continues to evolve, it's the same issues, right? Like they don't go away. It's what's the better way to implement them as you're going forward. And so this FedRAMP Authorization Act, I actually think that this is a great idea to be able to put it into to statute about the concept of how you're going to work with public-private partnership and, um, and put structure to it so that there's more, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, transparency into the process. Um, And then also really trying to help speed up the process, right, as well as the reliability. And this is what's old is new again. When, When something is authorized, you don't want agencies to expend their own resources to get something reauthorized because they're worried about Uh, what the IG is going to evaluate them on right when they get their annual report. And, And the whole theory behind all of this is if you go through this process, you should be able to rely on the artifacts that come out from it.
0: The whole idea of all of the things that you just laid out there, too, strike me as part of the reason that this legislation is necessary in the first place. And I recall in, what was it, 2008? Two thousand nine, something like that, when FedRamp rolled out, and Dave McClure came on the radio show with me when I was at Fed News Radio, and that was exactly the point that he made in that he and Kathy Conrad were trying to get at with FedRamp was they want to build this platform that's a floor for agencies that they know if a, a company is FedRamp certified, they're going to get this whatever this happened to be level of security accreditation, that it was a guarantee and that it was not something they had to rethink every single time they wanted to examine something. And somehow we got away from that or distracted from it or something. And, and that's the reason why we're here today with this legislation pending.
3: Well, and, and that's, again, the whole thing behind what's old, it's new again, and talking about the EGov Act, yeah. um, you know, what also passed at that time was also the federal information security managers act that management act that mm-hmm. passed at the same time right um and and we set up this whole industry uh, that dealt with certifications and accreditations, which then evolved into, you know, authorizations to operate, um, which then led to FedRAMP saying, hey, you should only have to do this once and then rely on it many times. And so I know if you had Foreman on here, you know, be create once, use many. and And that's the same theory here. And and part of the challenge is where the oversight comes from and how then is the oversight actually going to be conducted because agencies still get dinged individually and that's what part of the challenge is. And so this act is taking that into consideration going forward about, okay, if I'm going to rely on this floor, then I need to do the delta. And if you look at the reciprocal part of this, like um, – You know, you take some of the cloud providers, they've gone to great lengths to put out there in the public domain, right? Like, this is our responsibility. This is your responsibility. If you look at their websites, they'll say, hey, these are the security controls that we have in place. These are the ones that you need to think about. And then that's where you get into the mission-specific applications. That's the delta. That's the piece that you have to do. But the other part of this, and I, I got to see it, as the DHS CIO, because we were on the I was on the job as a voting uh, member, and it's that continuous piece that has to happen. There, you know, we call it CDM, continuous diagnostics mitigation. I mean, there's all these different programs, but the the biggest thing is having CISA continuously be working with industry to evaluate, to make sure that the controls stay in place. That's the one thing that has to have um, a really good process that that not just a point in time with the 3PAO but that the that floor is constantly being evaluated and maintained.
0: All right, um my colleague Nahal Krishan writes at fedscoop.com if it passes into law the FedRAMP Authorization Act would ensure FedRAMP has a board to enhance and speed up the program. It would create a separate cloud advisory committee with five representatives from cloud service companies, two of which must come from uh, small cloud vendors. The 15 strong advisory committee would also contain one representative from CISA and one from NIST, two serving chief information officers from federal government agencies would sit on the committee. Is it your sense that that's an expansion of the jab, or what's what how would that advisory committee best serve the federal technology community in this FedRAMP role, Karen?
3: So I think, um, it's not going to. Uh, at least the way i read it it wouldn't take the place of the job but it would actually then complement and inform the process right so there is other voices that come uh to the table and i like the part especially where it says uh small providers right because when you start looking um especially if you get outside the beltway and you start looking at a lot of things a lot of cloud providers are are mid they're mid-sized companies, right? In in the telecom world, when we were you know, pulling telephones lines, it was always the last mile. Well, when you start looking at some of these bigger programs, like what DoD wants to do with CMMC, and they're talking about information, a lot of the people that are in that value chain that they have are, are mid-sized, smaller mid-sized, right? And then it always becomes... Um, a cost of doing business and then they say it's a barrier to to entry for small and mid-sized businesses. So what you'll end up hearing is hey is this new requirement the right requirement how does that translate between a microsoft cloud offering versus uh what i'm doing as a small managed uh service provider that's providing cloud services to this economic area which oh by the way there happens to be a big va hospital or there happens to be a big dod facility there and and so you have to have other voices at the table that are help informing this process and and the other part is is also giving you for lack of a better term the other requirements of what makes sense to go through faster because the the job has technical teams GSA has technical teams they're working on how do they prioritize uh the products that go forward right so if you're doing something as a service how do you prioritize that and how do you get through right now it's based on hey if you have an agency sponsor well You talk to any of these new companies that are trying to break in. It's the chicken and the egg. No, I don't have an agency sponsor because I'm not FedRAMP. No, I'm not going to invest in FedRAMP because I don't have an agency implementation. But this is really good technology. I think that advisory board will help break that logger jam as well.
0: All right. Um, Speaking of small and medium-sized businesses, you're uh, passionate about that and you're working uh, on that issue in your capacity as the managing director of the Cyber Readiness Institute And one of the issues that uh, especially the Defense Department is looking at, but the civilian agencies too, is the cyber posture, the cyber readiness of the businesses that come to do business with the organization, whether they're technology businesses or anything else. And um, CRI, you sent me this roadmap for preparing small and medium-sized businesses to be cyber ready. What's there that's potentially valuable to an organization inside the federal government that may or may not be uh, small or medium-sized?
3: Well, this is, uh, so thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to talk about CRI. So the roadmap that we uh, released is going for it because we're five years old, but uh, we're focused on four core issues. So when I tell you what they are, you're going to go, oh my gosh, no kidding. (laughs) And so it's passwords plus, right? Which is multi-factor authentication, automatic updates, phishing. And removable media. So you're like, yeah. Oh my gosh. Take, oh my gosh. Right. No kidding. So it's cyber hygiene. And so what, what we do is we have, that's our keystone, um, program that we have out there. But when you're done and you go through this program, you have a business continuity plan. You have an incident response plan. You have the policies in place, who's in charge. Uh, you turn on automatic updates, right. And it's written, so that the two-person pizza shop can actually implement all these things as they're using the different platforms. And here's the real key to success. All our material is free that's out there. And um, and it's the commitment of time. And we're very focused on the culture. So you want to, as you're a small business, have the right cyber-ready culture going forward. So as you continue to grow and you get more and more of uh you know these contracts going for it with the federal government that that your cyber posture grows, your cyber uh, practices grow, you're always cyber ready, and you're a good partner in that ecosystem. So, um, you know, when you start looking at what DOD is doing, or the whole supply chain initiatives that the government is looking at as a whole, it's not your number, you know, your tier one, it's your tertiary rate, right? it's the 10th person down in the supply chain, which is the whole reason why the CMMC program broke out. Um, and are they doing, in their part to be a good partner in the ecosystem so that they're not the reason why somebody gets penetrated.
0: There are three objectives in this roadmap. I read awareness, implementation and incentives. Awareness and implementation, I think, are pretty self-explanatory to people who are practitioners in this space. Karen, what does uh, what do cyber incentives look like in especially in a federal government agency environment?
3: Well, so some of the the pilots, we ran a specific pilot uh, with the defense industrial base with a partner in Hawaii, getting them ready, small and mid-sized businesses for CMMC. So some of the incentives, so things. Think about it like one, and this use case is documented. After they went through this program, they could clearly demonstrate if a requirement is, hey, you have to have cyber insurance. They they were able to get cyber insurance based on the artifacts that our program provided for them. Um, And so it's part of uh, being able to be a good business partner. The other parts on some of these other pilots that we're running is, um, do you get preferred status, right, as a supplier? because you've become and you've gone through the cyber readiness program. Um, So those are some of the things that they're looking at versus some of the pilots we ran dealt with – people who were critical suppliers already established in their supply chain. And um, the other thing that we also found out as we're doing this, so that's the expansion and really trying to figure out what the right incentives are so that as we're working with different groups, we can say, this is what we've seen has worked. This is um, what hasn't worked uh, is is really, even though you're a bigger company, what because of the way that we tackle these four issues, they say, They've learned new things going forward, and they have an IT shop, um, and they've made people go through. There's companies that are working with us um, that said, and they're in manufacturing. So think about this. So this is all the OT systems. They have um, every single employee running through our program before they can even touch the, the regular OT systems for manufacturing. So it's it's getting that culture of cyber readiness in, in your organization that allows you to continue to grow and Karen, not become a victim of ransomware for sure.
0: Karen Evans, great to talk to you as always. Thanks very much for coming on.
3: Thank you, Francis. I appreciate it.
0: You can read more about the eGov Act in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age. To access the new Veteran Mental Health and Resiliency Resources module, go to trailhead.salesforce.com. The Internal Revenue Service is in good shape financial management-wise. The Government Accountability Office finds some room for improvement on internal controls, though. Don Simpson's Director of Financial Management and Assurance Issues at GAO. Don, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What do you look at when you examine the financial statements of an organization in the federal government? Do you look at the same things each time, or is it dependent on factors regarding that individual agency? Welcome.
2: Thank you for having me. Uh, So a financial statement, we are, as part of our audit, we are looking each year that we perform the financial statement audit to determine whether the balance is being reported as of the end of the period, which in this case is September 30th, 2022. And as to whether those balances on the financial statements are reliable in all material respects, we are also um, reviewing internal controls over the processes used to prepare the financial statements. And we're also looking for any instances of um, reportable non-compliance with laws and regulations uh, that are significant uh, to, the, to the financial reporting process.
0: In the letter that you sent to Secretary of the Treasury Yellen, you write internal controls could be improved Uh, but IRS maintained in all material respects effective internal control over financial reporting. What kind of internal controls do you look at broadly and what did you find specifically the IRS could improve, on?
2: So we're looking at all the internal controls related to the financial reporting process. And so all the the transactions and balances that are being reported on the financial statements, we are looking at the key controls that IRS has to to, to properly record those balances and transactions on the financial statements. Um, And as you just stated, in all material respects, we found that um, IRS's internal controls over financial reporting were effective. Um, We did find two places where um, controls can be improved. Uh, And those two places relate to unpaid assessments and their information systems controls.
0: Tell me more about each of those, Dawn. What is deficient and what are the remedies for solving those problems?
2: Right. So in these two areas, progress uh, is needed to to, fully address the deficiencies that we've identified and as it relates to each one of them on the unpaid assessment side the there's a balance reported under, on the balance sheet for taxes receivable and as it relates to that specific line item on the balance sheet <clears throat> IRS has to perform a statistical estimation process to to obtain a reliable balance for financial reporting purposes. And this statistical estimation process works. We're able to um, audit that amount and determine that that balance is reliable for being reported on the balance sheet as of September 30th. But the the deficiency relates to that IRS does not have the systems to generate that amount um, through its normal um, processing of transactions and reporting in its general ledger. It has to go through this statistical estimation process to come up with a reliable balance for financial reporting purposes. And so, having um, so the deficiencies relate to the systems not not being uh, you know where they need to be to to get to this reliable balance without going through the statistical estimation process.
0: What's the why behind that? Do we know why this? The agency doesn't have those systems in place because the way you describe them sounds like that's pretty important to getting to where they want to be from a, fin- a financial management perspective.
2: And the and I mean, IRS has made progress in this area. It's they have a reliable process to come up with a balance for financial reporting purposes, and so they are continuing to work on you know the the systems that they need to you know to get that. Those systems, you know, where they they need to be, um, it, it it's a work in progress, um, but. As they say, in the meantime, while they're working on their systems, they're able to do this um, statistical estim- estimation process to get to a reliable balance as of September 30th.
0: Are there common threads across agencies as you look at them in where they have challenges with financial management reporting? Or is each agency really its own island unto itself as far as what it needs to improve, what it needs to work on?
2: There are – each agency is different uh, as far as where they have – deficiencies in internal controls. Um, The other significant deficiency that we found um, related to IRS is in the information systems. And if anything, across agencies, this might be one that's more common that that we see is is deficiencies related to their information systems. And specific to IRS, we found that there are continuing deficiencies in the in IRS's information systems they largely relate to access controls Uh, you know, as far as um, um, appropriately restricting access to your data and your systems and facilities, um, as well as configuration management in which you're uh, really making sure your systems are configured to avoid known vulnerabilities. Um, This is an area where IRS has made um, significant progress in the last couple of years um, in our, as a result of our prior year audit in fiscal year 2021, um, we reported that IRS closed over 60 of our recommendations. You know, we were able to close, you know, 60 recommendations based on the progress that um, IRS had made in this area. And we continued to see additional progress during our fiscal year 2022 audit. Um, We'll actually be reporting more details on the results of um, the status of our open recommendations in this area in our separately issued um, management report that will come out in the spring.
0: The uh, problems that IRS has with information technology and and associated systems have been well documented both by you and other oversight organizations, uh, TICTA and, and others, and in the media over the last any number of years how much of those systems problems that you're referring to there are tied to their technological issues and how much of them are tied to policies and procedures that they're changing or evolving or improving, yeah,
2: So for, We focus on the, the systems that are key to financial reporting processes. And that's where, you know, we have seen that, um, and the past couple of years for IRS has um, really focused in that area and it has um, implemented you know, many corrective actions that have that have have resulted in us being able to close you know several recommendations. Um, and so in that financial reporting um, area. Um, the as we were talking about just you know beforehand is uh, you know the systems issues related to um, specific access controls and configuration management, but then also with the the systems in the unpaid assessments area. Um, those are the two you know areas where there are systems um, as it relates to financial reporting, um, can be improved.
0: You've spoken about what sounds to me, at least like a large number of recommendations that the agencies closed over the last several years. Are they making progress overall in that trajectory? Are they closing more than you're finding? Are they kind of, does it seem like they're getting ahead of the curve?
2: Yes. Um, uh, As we reported for fiscal year 2021, if you look back at our um, management report that came out in May of this year, you'll see that... IRS closed over 60 recommendations and then we opened i believe an additional like eight recommendations and so you know definitely the net the net effect is more closures than than ones being opened and we continued to to see that in the fiscal year 2022 audit where IRS was making um, more progress than than what we were finding new issues in
0: and then i guess the other important metric there is are the ones that they're closing big ones versus the ones that are the, the new ones that you're finding may be smaller issues.
2: Yeah, and that is something as an auditor, you know, we evaluate each year um, the significance of the remaining deficiencies that are opened. Uh, and that is, you know, where each year we, we look at the aggregate effect of, of the, all of the deficiencies in the area and came to, as we reported this year, that it is a significant deficiency in internal control. So while it's not as significant as a material weakness, which would be your, your most significant internal control issue, you know, there are deficiencies and this still warrants, you know, um, attention,
0: Don Simpson, great insight into what's going on financial uh, management-wise at IRS. Thanks very much for joining me today.
2: Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: You can find a link to Don's work in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.